Hello and welcome to the Johnny Fallon podcast referendum series, where we are taking a look back at some of the referendums that have shaped modern Irish society. In this episode, we will go back to 1986 and Ireland's first referendum on divorce. This was a very different Ireland to the one we know today, but there are still some patterns and debates that have formed the landscape that we're so familiar with today. Referendums often try to deal with big issues and they can divide a society over the future direction that they want to take, but their consequences can be far-reaching. So let's see what the story was and who were the people shaping it as we talk divorce. It's good to be back with another podcast this week, as we say, looking at divorce and the divorce referendum in 1986 and this one's an interesting one for me because this over the course of this series we're going to look at at a number of referendums and 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 indeed what we know now is that we've had like three referendums effectively on divorce within 86 we have in 95 when it's introduced and just recently we have amended uh what the provisions of what was introduced in 1995 so Divorce is something that has evolved uh, with Irish society and with how our society has changed. So we're going to get into a big discussion on, on these and I want to break this topic up a little bit because you can get into the rights and wrongs of, of the issue itself and people's views on it, um, of which they are many and, and strongly held, but... It's also one of those topics where we, we, we can see it in, in different shades in terms of 86. What I want to get back to is just, I suppose, the rawness of, of what was this topic that was just kind of, if you like, coming on to Irish consciousness, really, in society uh, at that stage. Now, I'll explain, it wasn't new, but it was it was really just bursting onto the scene of political debate at that point. Um, the actual issues um, that were, let's say, a little bit more intricate about uh, divorce itself and how it was going to be introduced and some of the rights and wrongs of that, we're going to explore a little bit more under the heading of the 1995 referendum because that was the one that, that absolutely changed things. 86, we want to look at what was the embryonic problems here and what was the, the, the fallout around the political scene from a referendum like this because... It all comes uh, at a point we've we've talked over the election series and uh, in the podcast and, of course, over some of our other referendums about the change that was going on in Ireland, about what they were actually facing at this point as a society, Um, because it's been it's been a journey for Ireland. It's been a journey grappling with issues. And of course, the reason we do this uh, referendum series is because we have this written constitution and we have to keep going back and, and changing it. And as we've said in other episodes, that brings wonderful benefits and huge protections, but it also brings problematic things in that there are certain things that are prohibited and then you've got to go back. And sometimes people are wondering why we even have to vote on, on some issues. But some are big, like divorce, because they shape something about direction of a society what people think of that society and Ireland has at this stage been going through this evolution right throughout decades having just really been Ireland is still a young state effectively it's still learning its way um because you know this this is a state that is only really self-governing 
since the 1920s. So it's it's learning a lot about how it does these things. And, and it's learning a lot about itself because, you know, in, in early days of, of states, when, when you know, you go back to the War of Independence and you got there, there was almost a sense in those kind of times and in every country in that, look, once we rule ourselves, we'll all come to agreement. We might disagree over little things, but overall, we know exactly what we're doing. Uh, we'll, we'll all be acting in our best interests. And of course, then as soon as you get power and you're in, it doesn't work out quite like that. Issues are a lot more thorny and complex. People have different ambitions for what they think is right. And Ireland has been going through all that for decades. And that's been problematic for, for the country uh, and for the politicians to deal with who are struggling to try and decipher what, what is the right direction for it. Um, now you expect politicians to be at the forefront of this stuff because they've got to see, they've got the data, the information coming in, they've got to see the problems. The man on the street, if you like, is just an information receiver in many ways outside of their own experience. They're not to be expected to be to have all the data and have all the expertise. So the politicians usually should be some way ahead of the public doesn't always end up like that because in a democracy, of course, politicians are often chasing votes, which means they chase the popularity of what they think the public want. And all of that has been creating this um, this this political storm, if you like, that hits Ireland in the late 70s and 80s, where you have governments changing. You've had a, a very different, younger cohort of voters coming on from 77 onwards. And things have, have shifted in in society. Throughout the 80s, it's a recession. There are governments failing to deal with it. And of course, when we come now to 1986, again, if you went back to the, the um, election series podcast, you know, this was not a good time in Irish society in terms of economic uh, output. The country was struggling. Uh, yet again, we've had successive governments uh, in the early 80s failing uh, to deal with the issues. We get at least a Fine Gael government, uh, Fine Gael Labour government that gives us some continuity and stability uh, from 82. Unfortunately, they don't deal with the economic problems um, and, and they're far too late in, in coming around to it by 86. And they're starting to really, they're coming towards the end of, of their term almost and they're struggling with issues, they're struggling with the pressures they've been under and the disillusionment that people now have in that they haven't dealt properly or well with the economic situation. So all of this um, is now coming back to a government that's that's struggling on the economics so badly, yet it had, and where it, it deserves great credit, was there was a socially reforming agenda to that government. As we've seen, we've gone through um, in the previous podcast, we talked about the abortion referendum um, in, in 83. Um, so they've been on what I think they term themselves as something of a constitutional crusade uh, to, to change and handle big issues. And here they are finally taking on one that is in the background for quite some time. What is interesting, though, about it is that it's it's handled badly, it's received badly, and in the environment it drops into, I want to look at it because it's it's there's so much politics being played with it. It maybe never had a chance. 
the proposal probably never had a chance in that it was probably ill-conceived at the beginning, poorly implemented in a campaign and, you know, had opponents who were just playing around the edges of it, never willing to let it get over the line anyway. So all through this, this referendum struggled, but it does. I mean, you, you have opinion polls which are suggesting anywhere up to 60% of people, you know, supporting the idea of divorce in some way, that they're okay with this, they're okay with this and, and moving on. And, and again, that's worth considering and exploring why that had happened. But then we end up with a referendum where it's heavily defeated, where, where those figures, you can almost go right back and you find that uh, the, the amount of people voting no to um the this change will end up being at 60 over 63 percent compared to 36 percent supporting us now opinion polls were showing the exact reverse of that situation so how did it get to that point how did it get mucked up so spectacularly uh, in that attempt and it's an interesting one because politically we've got to try and understand that too why is it that governments who seemed to have something that this was their positive, okay, even if the economics wasn't going well, let's do something good here, and their support for it, and yet it all goes wrong again. And, and of course, familiar story with governments, sometimes you just can't catch a break, and that must be how they saw it at this time. So look, how did we get here? Well, the Constitution, when it was written in, in of course, 1937, uh, included a constitutional ban on divorce. Now again, uh, and we talked about this a little bit in, in uh, our last podcast on abortion too, um, when you look back at some of these these issues, you have to see a constitution, if you're going to write it, is, is never going to be a complete, uh, a, a complete document that lives as it is forever. Because races of people, societies change their mind it is a living document. It is something that requires change, it requires maintenance, and it has to be adapted to changing circumstances and attitudes. That's why you have referendums. So you can change it, because it's not just written once and that's it. You should be able to revisit topics. Indeed, you should be able to revisit topics multiple times if necessary uh, to get clarity from the people as to what direction they want and in order to allow you as a leader or others to shape the country that you live in. That's the idea. So it is this living document. But in 1937, many countries across Europe were, you know, in this space where they were a lot more conservative. Um, and, and having something like a prohibition on divorce was not shocking. Um, there, were, there were other countries. Italy, for instance, had, had a ban on it at this stage too. Um, it was probably supported by people of different faiths, be it Certainly, um, obviously the Catholic Church was a big part of it, didn't like divorce, was the, the majority religion and well supported at this point by the people. And sometimes we forget that. Um, there can be a tendency to think the Catholic Church was forcing everything down on people and people were didn't want it, but were, were taking it. They wanted it. The they, they support for the Catholic Church was huge. Um. And of course, the Anglican Church pro around this time would have supported the idea as well that there be a prohibition on, on divorce. But that changes over time. Now, of course, in a lot of countries, what's unusual about Ireland is that in a lot of the other countries where you've experienced, 
you know, I suppose Europe changes dramatically, obviously, uh, after the 1930s. There is the trauma of World War II. There is so many huge things affecting and shaping society economically. Europe has to shift completely. What it experiences is very different. So that by the 60s and the 70s, they're very different societies. Um, and most of the countries have moved on quite a lot by the 1970s from, from uh, some of those attitudes that would have been around in the 20s or 30s. Ireland has not been on the same trajectory. Uh, it, it's been moving forward. It's, it's gradually, but it's a little bit slower. Um, it's not in the heart of everything that's happening um in in europe it's a little bit behind in the 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 60s and the the 70s it's not getting those massive there are reforms it is a turbulent time for ireland but not just, we're not seeing the kind of pace of change that you're seeing elsewhere and we end up with a situation where divorce is really still not something that's been dealt with in ireland uh by 1986 now that in itself is somewhat surprising i think and, and and that then makes ireland um i think i'm correct in saying they're a little bit of an outlier at this point uh in it but ireland is happy or at least claims to be happy with the situation now you see when you go back and you go back into the 70s i mean we can pretend and we can say you know oh look people wanted this and they were there but the change was there the demand was there government were following because problems were showing up in society deep problems problems where people were feeling that they were they were trapped by the rules and they didn't agree with them just wasn't easy to speak out and it wasn't easy to say it but the very reason we start looking at divorce and it becomes part of this constitutional crusade if you like is because the problems were becoming evident and more and more people even the man on the street as i say who maybe his own lived experience is beginning to see this um and and again we're seeing here particular issues for women um and we're seeing uh, uh, this embryonic growth of women's voices in politics on issues now you saw it in the 1983 referendum on abortion and you're seeing it again here where there's an effort to try and discuss this from the point of view of, of women who are experiencing something very different and, and, and that particular um, narrative in divorce becomes very powerful, even more powerful going forward to 1995 referendum. But at this point, it's growing and it is becoming something that people are beginning to feel. There's, there's, a, there's a, something building in Ireland that is changing politics that says, the old ways can't just keep going on forever. There are problems here, there are issues here that have to be addressed. And this is the point at which, you know, we find the government deciding, right, let's deal with this one. So they set up a committee, they look at it, they get recommendations from it. Um, it's it's the, the, the old usual way of doing it, set up an Iraq disjoint committee, look at marital breakdown, because this is happening. Marital breakdown is happening in Ireland. And people were just having to get on with it. You just weren't allowed divorce. There was no second chances, you know, going for, for a wedding then again. It was just done. And yet people were aware increasingly that this was happening and it was creating an issue. Do we want divorce? You know, but what if we do end up with divorce? Is that going to mean everyone gets divorced? Um, 
And it's it's a crazy kind of time when you think about it because I remember being around in eighty six and I was I was young at the time and was you know people were debating the the divorce and I remember the conversations being about things like uh people saying we don't want to become America America was this big you know gosh you know. I mean, to be honest, we'd all only have seen America on the telly, to be quite honest. I mean, certainly from my experience, uh, or a couple of people had gone and emigrated and whatever, and you'd heard stories back. But really, we were just looking at the telly and, and, and saying, oh, America, it's gone mad over there. Um, and people were saying, don't want to end up like America. Uh, and, and I remember somebody saying in our kitchen where it said, you don't want to end up like America, where they have a divorce because the kettle doesn't boil. And that that was honestly the view that couples got married and then, you know, one day, well, kettle's not boiling, have a row, that's it, we're divorced. And they were they were scared of that becoming the norm as they saw it in Irish society. And again, I remember coming from that, that, that strong family unit background and my own parents been in there and them too being you know, very dubious about this because it was always this thing, marriage is hard. Marriage has to be worked at. Um, It's not all romance and boxes of chocolates and flowers and nice times and everything else. Marriage is a lot of the time dealing with each other's problems. It's dealing with financial problems. It's dealing with struggles. It's dealing with illness. It's dealing with being worried for your kids, your family, that the whole shebang is actually quite difficult and hard and requires an awful lot of work and an awful lot of effort but because you love each other and you know you're there and you rely on each other you see each other through and that's the view I think Manny had of marriage and divorce and and the sense was that if you have divorce and it's easy to get a divorce then you get a lot of people, and again, you know what, there's a little bit of suspicion of the young people again here, and we're always back to this when we talk about all these elections and referendums, there's always a little bit of, oh, the young people are not like us, and these young people don't understand, and sure, if you allow divorce, they're just going to go out, and first of all, they'll marry the first person they see, because they'll marry them because they, they, they just can and there's a way out. If there's no way out, it stops people being silly about getting married. They know it's serious and they know it's for life. If it's easy to get a divorce, sure, they'll be like this Liz Taylor or whatever, having seven marriages and, you know, can't have that. That was the feeling. You know, the people would perhaps not just treat marriage with this sanctity that they wanted it to have. People, young people especially, will take these quick easy decisions to get married and then um, as soon as they are married and they have a tough day or a tough couple of weeks or a tough couple of months they're not going to pitch in and actually stick with each other they're going to go oh you know what this is tough I'm getting out of here I want to be with somebody and be back to having fun and all the great things of perhaps dating in your early early days and that view is very deeply ingrained in many people um, at this point in 86, that, you know, marriage is not frivolous here and it's to be respected. Uh, and we're not dealing with the same kind of people as we were in our age. And this is something, and, and I think that's an important point because it runs through all referendums, it runs through all elections, 
It runs through politics time and time again, generation after generation. The deep-rooted suspicion of the generation that's coming straight after us. There, we can't let them in. They, they don't know what they're doing. They're all into their books and their TV programs from, from America and they're being influenced by that. They're all into just watching TV and computer games. They're all into, uh, you know, their, their Playstations or they're all into their TikTok. Each generation moves along and blames whatever it is that influences that generation on making these younger people more stupid, more frivolous and less able to handle things than we were. And we all do it. Uh, and where that comes to the fore is then when you're dealing with a really difficult situation like divorce. And you see this coming out in referendums. You're seeing here there's a lack of trust as people going wrong. Because you would sit back then and say, but isn't it all right if if I am married and I'm happily married? You know, no one's asking you to get divorced. No one's forcing you to get divorced. So what's it to you? But the problem for these people is, well, it's it's about my, my my children growing up too and having, you know, some kind of uh, guidelines for themselves and, and, and understanding it and the society I want for them and I don't want the culture to change. That's where you get this really big problem um, because you can't make big social issues like that that are going to affect the long term of society if we have this suspicion always of the next generation and what they're going to turn out like and why they're not like us. Um, and that does play a little bit of a role in all of this. To give a little bit of a flavour though maybe of <clears throat> just why this started to go wrong and how you get a position where people were openly considering divorce though, they had their suspicions but they were aware, everyone probably in the 1980s and by 86, I think it's fair to say nearly everybody knew someone who had a difficult marriage or a marriage that had broken down or at least a marriage that everybody knew if they could get out of it, they probably should. Um, there was always, every everybody probably knew of one of those stories. And that's what influencing society at the same time, that, you know, they have this great overall view of this idyllic society they want to live in. But at the same time, they are aware of difficult circumstances and problems and issues that are arising for them uh, and are arising for friends, family, neighbours, and that's causing them to, to doubt but they separate that from, let's say, this great overall society that they want. But at the same time, they're willing to think about divorce and they're willing to think that maybe there is a way of introducing this. So how do we get back then to this spectacular defeat of it um, in 86? And I suppose I'm going to turn to the words of the man who is largely uh, responsible, if you like, for bringing it forward. And that is the then Taoiseach, Garrett Fitzgerald, because he's been one of these reforming thinkers. Um, but he's struggling at this point with the, the fact that he's not recognised as having done a good job on the economy. The government's struggling. This is where he can make a reputation. So again... You know, what was it that, that undermined some of that? Well, take up um, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald's words from his book, Reflections on the Irish State. And he says, uh, quote, Moreover, however paradoxical it may seem, the delay in the introduction of civil divorce may also have contributed to the undermining of marriage. 
For, in the absence of divorce, marriage breakdowns during the 1970s and the 1980s led increasingly to the formation of informal unions on a scale that soon led to a ready acceptance of such arrangements as normal elements in society. It was, in fact, concern at the way in which marriage was thus being marginalised in a manner damaging to society, to social stability, that led me, as Taoiseach, to initiate the divorce referendum of 1986. Unfortunately, neither side in that divorce debate proved willing to even address this key issue. The institutional church chose to campaign on the basis of simplistic and unverified sociological assertions, bolstered up by dubious floodgate theory, which was sometimes combined with theological statements of a kind that were irrelevant to the issue of civil divorce. And these church spokesmen were backed by lay advocates who deployed emotive arguments about property designed to frighten those who owned assets of various kinds, especially land. Meanwhile, on the other side of uh, most of the advocates of divorce were largely content to make specious claim that something called a civic right existed to repudiate marriage contracts that have been entered into on the basis of indissolubility, backing up this claim with hard cases of the kind that make bad law. There was simply no willingness to debate seriously the issue of whether we had or had not reached the stage of which absence of any kind of divorce was creating a society in which proliferation of unrecognised unions was undermining marriage to a greater extent than the availability of divorce was likely to do. Whilst I recognise, of course, that the merit of that argument was and remains necessarily a matter of judgment, I have to say that the way events developed since 1986 has strengthened my belief that in the interest of social stability, divorce should have been introduced a good deal earlier, probably in the 1970s. End quote. I think that's a fascinating, uh, just, just insight. It's, it's, it's a wonderful piece to be able to get, you know, in someone's own words from your Taoiseach. Uh, one of the great things of having in, in this period is, is how many uh, first-hand accounts you can get of things. But... For me, Fitzgerald there raises uh, a number of really important questions here. The first one that I find interesting is his argument as to why he was introducing divorce. Um, and he says that the argument wasn't understood and it wasn't uh, accepted. And I'm going to say here he's probably right if that, if that was his thinking because... You know, again, in my memory of 86 and that, I have no sense of that being... I, I The hard cases, yes... Um, the reason for marriage breakdown being a tragedy, yes. Um, the the need for a second chance, all of that kind of thing, yes. Those were were things. The idea that we need divorce because society is actually having a bit of a breakdown because people just aren't getting married because they're scared of getting married, is not one that for me, uh, ever reached the surface in that debate. Um, so if he did intend us, I don't think he ever made that argument successfully. Uh, and as he said himself, it certainly wasn't part of the 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 debate, the wider debate, even though he, um, he blames that on on some of the others around around about the the voices in the in the debate. Now I do think it's an interesting point though, because what Fitzgerald is suggesting uh, there that and he admits this is a matter of opinion on it, but he's saying look, people were actually effectively getting scared to get married because once you marry, you're stuck up for life, and they were beginning to accept let's say, the informal union of just living together and let's not get married and have all the stress that goes with that. 
and that's I don't know I don't know what the stats are on it at, at that stage wouldn't have been one that I would have thought of or, or would strike me looking back at us that our society was certainly breaking down over the numbers of of people who weren't married um I wasn't aware of a huge amount of them at that time but then I'm from rural Longford so you know there was tradition and all that probably not the place you're going to find most of them but it's it, it, it's certainly an interesting argument uh, from a societal uh, perspective. Do rules like this cause issues like that? Do, do they, can they actually be utterly counterproductive? Um, I'm not sure that it was perhaps the, the reasoning for everybody going in and, and wanting the, the divorce, that that was their reasoning, that was in a way to protect some marriage and to encourage it. Um, but Fitzgerald anyway seems to say, look, that, that he did believe in that. And that was what he 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 wanted. Now, he talks about uh there some of the things about the 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 church, and the floodgate theory and all that. There's just the idea again that going back to that point I made earlier that once you allow this, you're just gonna have rakes of people going in wanting to get divorced, and you know, that's it. You open the floodgates. Uh, everybody has this issue. Now, as I say, some of those issues. <clears throat> Better looked at in under the the the, the prism of the nineteen ninety five, uh, referendum because I think where Fitzgerald is right is we never get to the core of any of the issues in eighty six eighty uh, ninety five does begin to deal with some of them and deal with some serious questions but eighty six just just that, those getting to things at the core of it is difficult now he also says about you know, uh things about the land, uh and you know that deploying emotive arguments uh, and and all that about land inheritance but those were actual problems that begin to come in 86 and that's that's one that I think we have to note here too <clears throat> and that possibly explains some of the reason for the massive shift that as the referendum came through it did point to some serious questions that hadn't been dealt with when it comes to inheritance and welfare and taxation, and it wasn't ready to actually deal with some of those things. Now, I know Fitzgerald is a little bit dismissive of it as he talks there, uh, and perhaps understandably, he's looking at the bigger picture, the bigger things, and saying, look, we could have dealt with those things, which you could do. You can deal with them things, legislation and so on, but he's worried about it. Now, one of the things that he, he also mentioned is that thing of land, because in in again, Ireland is still quite large sections of rural vote, uh, and and that is a worry. The whole idea of um inheritance and land, and are you going to lose the land? Of what happens in a divorce about land, that does scare people. Anybody from a rural background, a farming background, um, will know that. Once you mention stuff like that, you terrify people because land is something that remains in the family and it remains with the name and it remains in the bloodlines and it's important it's at the core people and it's their wealth uh, and and once you start threatening that you cause massive issues um in uh, and that begins to worry rural audience as well but perhaps it wasn't all as as plain sailing as as it sounds in that in that it was as simple with the issues there were a lot a lot of issues that were going wrong within how this referendum was brought about. Now, one of the voices um, who was, let's say, a leading voice in this uh, was a young firebrand by the name of Alan Shatter in Fine Gael, who was 
widely regarded as one of the men who was brilliant in in terms of family law as a lawyer um and he is one of these reforming voices in Fine Gael. He's one of these who is pushing for changes in legislation and how it's dealt with. But any of you, those of you familiar with, with politics of the last decade and so, you know, Alan Shatter, is he, he's one of these guys generally recognised as, as, you know, can be good company at times and very intelligent, but also can be dismissive of others and he's often accused of arrogance and all through his career he's had these ups and downs with some of the people he's worked with. Back in 86 he was an up and coming uh, guy within the party but he was really struggling to get a break. He was really struggling to break through and be, he wasn't a minister um, and he wasn't one of the, the, the voices they turned to. And he talked this, about this in, in Katie Hannan's book, uh, The Naked Politician. Um, Alan Shatter talks to, to Katie Hannan about how uh, this referendum and what actually happened as they ran up to it uh, and, and how his interaction with Fitzgerald also went. So uh, Alan Shatter says, uh, quote, uh, he was, Alan Shatter was appointed to the Oireachtas Committee on Marriage Breakdown. He reasoned that Garrett had to do something with me at that stage. The committee report produced after 18 months consultations bore he couldn't help recalling with a satisfied smile an uncanny resemblance to his own flak report of 1971 and his recommendations for reform from his two family law books. The committee concluded that there was much work to be done. There was no question of jumping into a divorce referendum overnight. You had to lay the basis for it by enacting major reforms in family law, Shatter says. Then, as he describes it, something astonishing happened. Wandering down a corridor in Leinster House of an evening, Garrett called him over, saying he had something to show him. He pulled out a slip of paper from an inside jacket pocket and said, We're going to announce a divorce referendum tomorrow, and this is the wording. I looked at the wording, which included a provision that divorce would only be granted if it was in the interests of the welfare of the children of the parties. I looked at him and I asked if he was really serious about this. He said the AG had prepared the wording that morning. What did I think? I said, this is a disaster. Half the judiciary would be opposed in principle to divorce. Nearly all of them, bar four, are from Roman Catholic background and education. The Bar Library is full of people who campaigned against the 83 abortion referendum. Some of them are now judges. How many divorces do you think will be granted on the basis that it would be in the interests of the children? This is complete insanity. I said, you could deal with it in such a way and such a way and asked if I could take note of the wording. He said, cabinet was meeting at nine o'clock. I said, can I take a note of this and meet you at eight o'clock and give you an alternative to consider? Fitzgerald declined, insisting that it was a confidential document, but agreed to meet Shatter at 8am. I walked straight into Leinster House Library, trying to memorise the wording of this fragment of paper. I wrote it down as best I could. In the context of this and other contexts I'd had with him, it seemed to me that Garrett was for the birds. Completely for the birds. I went home and told my wife. I made a whole series of notes and met Garrett at 8am. Fitzgerald had consulted with the Attorney General in the interim and had come up with a new draft. According to Shatter, it took account of one thing I'd said. The court would no longer have to decide it was in the best it was in the children's interest. We had a discussion about this, and then he handed me a document with 
all the other reforms they were going to bring in. I started reading them. It was seriously defective. Things to do with inheritance rights, social welfare entitlements and pensions weren't even addressed. There were some things in it that were just plain wrong. I said there were major problems with this document. He said I don't have time to discuss it. At this stage he was getting phone calls telling him the cabinet was sitting outside. He said that he planned to circulate the document at today's parliamentary party meeting and asked Shatter for a memo on his concerns saying I can't deal with that today. He then let me out a side door. The cabinet came in another door and to this day I have no idea whether any of them know I had this discussion with him. A few hours later at our parliamentary party meeting there was an announcement made that we were heading down the road to a divorce referendum and this document I knew to be defective was distributed. Did he screech his concerns from the rooftops? Did he announce his fears from on high? No, he did not. I stayed stum at the meeting. If I had stood up and spoken, it would have been leaked. There were enough people who were going to crucify the poor man. Oliver Flanagan, Alice Glenn. He didn't need me doing it. And then, when I watched the divorce referendum campaign go right down the drain, they seemed to adopt the view that if they all keep their heads down, it would all turn out right in the end. This may sound very arrogant, but the only person who could have taken uh, the anti-divorce campaign or William Bilchey on in 1986 on a legal level would have been me. I had absolutely no platform in FG to do that. I couldn't do it. I was just a gobshite backbencher. The media had no interest in me. With all respect to the political correspondents, they have no idea who is an expert on anything until they are told by the relevant press officer. They only wanted ministers and very few ministers wanted to say anything. The reality was the referendum was premature anyway. End quote. That's from uh, Alan Shatter talking to Katie Hannan in her book The Naked Politician. You know, I think there you get a sense of uh, uh, those little those little insights tell you a little bit about what politics is like sometimes when you're in there uh, in inside the rooms. And you're talking to people and you're, you're getting sense of, of the frustrations because clearly to those of us on the outside, if you look at this, this is a Taoiseach, comes up, talks to Attorney General, gets wording, talks about bringing a referendum, everybody's united, Fine Gael Party at this point all stand behind us and yes, we're, we're, we're going to do this, you have some voices against us who are highly conservative, they're Oliver J. Flanagan. Uh, Alice Glenn, people like that, you know, going to, to criticise him for it. But you know what, we get this sense of, yeah, but, you know, must know what they're doing, must be, must be all part of it. And then you hear something like that, and it, it, I think it pulls back the curtain a little bit on what goes on in politics. Um, Alan Shatter is, undoubtedly at this point, uh, someone who is an expert in this field, uh, particularly in family law. But politically, he's not going to be allowed to the top here because there are personality issues and there are issues with, you know, he, he, he mentions himself there, could have been arrogant. But he also is a, a, a fair point that on the no side on this is going to be um, Professor William Binchy, who is a formidable uh, debater and who is able to argue this from a legal perspective and punch holes continually in it. And it probably needed somebody who was also going to have a certain legal standing to battle it back without being made feel like well, you guys just don't understand the law and you've made a hames of everything here. Uh, and that was probably where they could have done with Chatter. But interestingly also that despite all of this, you're seeing that someone within that party is looking going, 
this is seriously defective. It's not dealing with several of the issues. And of course, much and all, and I think it's interesting to see the um, juxtaposed with Gareth Fitzgerald's opinion there of people introducing specious kind of arguments in, into it. Uh, and Shatter on the other side is saying, look, you know, it was it was premature anyway. And it probably was. They probably were not ready for it. Um, they probably had not got a real grasp of the situation and they needed people who knew a little bit more about what was happening on the ground. People like that, legal experts like Shatter, to probably drive this on a little bit. Coming to it within 24 hours and, and, and then you also get that frustration of someone like Alan Shatter being asked, what are your thoughts on this piece of wording here? Show you a slip of paper. No, you can't take it away. Let's meet at eight in the morning and now we're just doing this. That 24 hour cycle, you would think that in governments and politics, things are arranged and you get time and space. You don't. You often are making things up on the go. Um, and, and unfortunately, when you think of an issue that's this big, as divorce was going to be and, and, and affecting so many people. It's not how you want to imagine politics going. It's not how you want to imagine uh, politics as a, uh, you know, we would like to think it's all a lot calmer and more organised than that. But anyway, Shadow does point out here that he then is left watching this referendum go down the tubes here because they've been a little bit, you know, they, they, they've they not really thought everything through. And in a complex issue like this, you've got to have the detail right because you're going to face arguments from people who are against this on religious grounds. And you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with a very strong church still that has issues with um the, the idea of divorce. That's one group. And then you're going to deal with a group who maybe are saying, OK, well, you know, I could potentially go against the Catholic Church. And they, they do exist. You know, people are not as wedded to it as they used to be, um, pardon the pun. But there are people, Catholics, who are willing to say, but I can consider going against it. But they need it to be absolutely rock solid. And if you then introduce an idea that some things aren't thought out, this is an ill thought out bill, what you get is people going... I'm not sure I want to vote for this on the basis that it's, you know, it, this isn't the right one. If they'd done it right, I could vote for it. And then you get people who actually are in support of divorce, who then begin to find problems with it, who also mount up then saying, actually, this isn't going to deliver the kind of divorce that we want and the kind of rules that we think should be around it. Therefore, it's a bad idea too. Once you get that, you're 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 on a hiding to nothing. Now across the way, you have of course Fianna Fáil, um, who are central to this whole debate too. This is the biggest uh, Fine Gael Labour are in government. Sitting across from them, as followers of the election series know, uh, is Fianna Fáil, the biggest political movement in the state, um, and at this stage. A powerful, powerful organisation. This is one uh, political organisation that perhaps for younger listeners kind of say at this point, Fianna Fáil is into every town, village in the country. It is equally as powerful in major urban centres as it is in uh, small rural villages. It's uh, supported by wealthy people. It's supported by working class people. All of that. So it, it, it's it's a strong and powerful political movement. And that's what the government is facing on the opposition benches. Not just another kind of political party that's, you know, snapping at their heels and eager. 
this is one that's eager to get back to government that's going up well in the polls and Hahi Charles Hahi is the leader of this who is a figure who has if you like controversially decided that in the course of this government he's going to oppose them he's gone into this thing of total opposition all out opposition that doesn't matter what the government is saying even if I agree with it I'm disagreeing with it with this government this is opposition at its most hardcore that's our job we're here to oppose and by god we're going to do it um and he he does this in a in a way that's designed to bring pressure on the government and it does <clears throat> and just to turn to stephen collins in his book uh, the power game fianna fall since lamas um he touches on some of the things that um shaped this this for fianna fall and their view on it and he says uh, quote in June 1986, in line with his policy of opposing the government on every possible issue, Hahi took delight in helping to torpedo the coalition's efforts to introduce divorce. In theory, Fianna Fáil was neutral on the issue, but the party organisation was the mainstay of the anti-divorce campaign in many parts of the country. Hahi claimed not to be taking sides, but he made his position clear enough. For my part, he declared, I approached the issue from the point of view of the family. I have an unshakable belief in the importance of having the family as the basic unit of our society. My experience of life tells me that this is the best way in which to organise a society. I want to make the valid point that there is a price to be paid for the introduction of divorce and that people must decide on whether they wish to pay that price. It is not reasonable to suggest that there is some form of divorce that could be introduced which would not see, have many definite consequences for society, for the stability of the family and for the rights of existing family members. End quote. There's no doubting if you're uh, somebody listening to that, again, from this Fianna Fáil organisation that's, that's quite powerful at this point, um, and, you know, so embedded and, and has all these strong links, you know, party says, well, we're neutral on the issue. <clears throat> but your party leader comes out and makes that statement. It's it's interesting in the framing of it, you know. um, It's just a simple way. I'm not, you know, for it or against it here, but I am going to tell you I believe in the family as the basic unit of society. I'll come back to that in a minute. I mean, just on, on the personal level, the Hahi thing, you know, I, I know there's going to be people scoffing that Hahi was saying that, and what people know now, etc. That, but, Look, it's political belief too, but he says here, you know, look, uh, the family's the basic unit, and I believe that. But it's the framing then. He goes in, in being neutral, It's the, the language is so important. And he says, you know, there is a price to be paid for introducing divorce, and we need to decide if we're willing to pay that price. Yeah, you know... If you're looking at how to frame something, that's the way to not take a position and take an absolutely 100% position because you have just framed divorce as a price to be paid. That's it. Divorce is not something good or positive. It's a sacrifice you're now making. You're deciding to... Who wants to pay a price? If, if, if you can avoid paying a price, well, of course we'll avoid paying the price. Whoever jumps up and says, I want to pay a price, it's always immediately... I'm very simply taken out and said, look, I'm not taking sides here, but I do believe strongly in the family and I'm going to tell you, you know, there's a price to be paid, but maybe, maybe it's okay to pay that price, but you know, that's up to you. 
<laughs> you know, it's, you're not going to have anyone neutrally trying to make up their mind and say, oh, yeah, fair point. And, and what's interesting is that it is a, a, an appeal to that middle ground voter of, you know, don't be feeling I'm not one of these crazies out there to tell you you can't have divorce. But I'm just gently reminding you that there, there would, of course, be that price. And that's actually more powerful than the person shouting and roaring that, you know, we can't have divorce for X, Y and Z reasons and we must defeat it and it may a great evil. You know, it's it's that framing is so important. It's that that changes people's behaviours, that just plants that seed of whatever about it, even in, in the best way, it's probably not an ideal thing. Um, <clears throat> and that begins, and, and of course that's going to make this Fianna Fáil organisation um, much more uh, determined to uh, oppose it. And of course, uh, every organisation, every every debate needs to have um, somebody who is going to populate it, canvas, go out, work hard for it. And it's likely that Fianna Fáil um, were the ones who decided that uh, for them, you know, for their members, they would go out and support the anti-divorce campaign. Uh, now, this is also touched on by Noel Whelan in his book, Fianna Fáil, A Biography of the Party, where he gives us some sense uh, as to, to what was happening here. Uh, and he says, quote, Fitzgerald also struggled to persuade some in the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party to support the government's commitment to removing constitutional prohibition on divorce. He and Dick Spring did manage, however, to get legislation through the Dáil and the referendum was held on the 26th of June 1986. Fianna Fáil adopted an official policy of neutrality during the campaign, but in reality, many in the party were active in the no campaign. The resounding defeat of the proposal, with 63% voting no, suggests that almost all Fianna Fáil supporters also opposed it in the ballot box. However, the government's lack of legislative preparation on tax, social welfare and inheritance implications of the divorce proposal was probably the primary reason for its defeat. End quote. <clears throat> And I think, look, that, that does, you Noel know, there puts that into some real context for us as to what was going on here. There was, there was politics being played with this, no doubt. Um, that framing of it was very easy um, to make. But probably what was the real kicker in this was that once it became that it wasn't somehow a totally solid proposal, that becomes a major issue for many voters. And if they were kind of thinking of, well, I'll give the benefit of the doubt and I will support the government and I will vote for divorce, it becomes, I won't vote for this divorce. And of course, that's why the issue for me in 86 doesn't actually rise to being a, an issue about divorce itself and the rights or wrongs of that and becomes an issue about this divorce, this particular divorce bill, because it's flawed. It's flawed in what it was trying to do and what it was asking people to just trust them on. Once we get into the campaign, what's interesting to look back at is, is, is some of the literature maybe that came from that. And again, I want to uh, call out uh, Alan Kinsella at Election Lit on uh, Twitter, who, of course, has, has very kindly um, given me many of the, the some of the samples of some of the literature from various referendums, uh, including this one, and he really has a, a fascinating connection uh, that gives such an insight into what was happening in, in real time. Uh, one uh, piece that I get here is from the Divorce Action Group, um, which produced a, a, a leaflet, uh, talking about why 
uh, vote asking people quite plainly vote yes very simple you know red and white be saying you know vote yes and uh, vote yes for divorce on june 26th use your vote um divorce action group um, um one of the things i find funny about is a little three-page uh, pamphlet uh, and it says on the back of it uh it's, it's just a very simple thing asking for money just as money resources are necessary to win this referendum through our national campaign of posters leaflets and public meetings you can make a personal donation ask your trade union branch uh, your party common or branch etc to make a contribution or organize a fundraising activity social disco bring and buy sale or whatever in your area you can make lodgements directly to account number blah de blah allied irish bank Baker street dublin 2 or by gyro from any branch of any bank uh, and i i just find that fascinating just the idea of your bank details uh, or the organization's bank details is fascinating to go make a bank gyro um donation to them just again reminds us of, of the times they were and the discos and the bring and buy sales and, and everything uh, and they did need of course the the resources but within the document uh the core part of it um of a talks about why you should vote yes um and it says i'm just going to read this middle section for you quote why you should vote yes the divorce action group urges you to go out and vote yes because one marital breakdown is a fact of life in ireland Seventy thousand people are affected by it and suffering it brings with it the constitutional ban on divorce does not stop marriages dying it just refuses to grant them a death certificate two when a marriage breaks down, the partners involved have the right to end the relationship legally and with dignity. That right, denied to thousands of Irish men and women, will become available if the amendment is passed. 3. People deserve a second chance. At the moment, thousands of couples are involved in stable second relationships, which are, to all intents and purposes, second marriages. The state refuses to give these couples any legal status, brands their children as illegitimate, and grants them no rights. 4. Even the Catholic Church annuls marriages, thus recognising tacitly that they no longer exist. The hypocrisy which allows people to remarry in church but brands them as bigamists in the eyes of the law brings both church and state into disrepute. 5. The rights of children, of the marriages that break down and of the second relationships, must be protected. At the moment, what happens to the children of broken marriages is left all too often to two deeply unhappy adults at a time when their relationship is ending and they feel hostile to each other. If the amendment is passed, that will change. The new family courts will help parents to do what is best for their children. End quote. Um, and I think they're the, 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 the leaflet bringing across they're asking people to vote yes and it, it it talks about a couple of things first of all you you get a sense of the numbers here talking about seventy thousand people being affected by it um the the idea and one that i do remember quite from this and 95 that that idea of people deserving a second chance that was one of the arguments that i think people often put in there and and because people anecdotally did feel and understand they knew someone and thought you know yeah i mean we want people to be happy uh, interesting point they raise about the Catholic Church, which of course did allow marriage to be annulled. You, know, you had to meet various difficult conditions, and you had to go to Rome and all this kind of stuff to get. It was a difficult thing to get an annulment, but you could be get your marriage annulled. But what happened in that case was you were annulled, but your legal marriage was still there, so you just weren't. You know, the church could allow you 
to um you have your marriage annulled but you were still married in the eyes of the state and you couldn't get out of that and yet the catholic church was one of the ones saying we can't have divorce so they were quite happy to say well you can be annulled and now tough you're kind of snookered on the old state law there but anyway look at that's life um so there were all these kind of things that were thrown up um they were strange they were they were unusual circumstances um and of course there was a recognition that this referendum was a, an attempt to deal with some of them one of the interesting ones as well of course from this time uh, of the parties who were contributing to it was a labor document who simply was in um, it was black document with red for the the labor party the labor rose and just simply vote yes um and entitled with their their logo for this campaign which was put compassion in the constitution um simple line um that 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 works a little bit of alliteration um and it says uh, under a picture of dick spring uh young youthful leader dick spring and it says we all wish we lived in a country where marriage breakdown was not a problem but in the real world we live in it has become a very serious problem. Vote yes. Um, <clears throat> now, within it, it breaks everything up into little boxes and segments, which, again, I think uh, if there's document designers out there, probably giving them a twitch at, at how it looks. But uh, it goes into it quite simply redheading over each paragraph and says, uh, a real problem, a real response. We all wished we lived in a country where it was not a problem, but it has become a very serious problem. Thousands of men and women and children are trapped in the bitterness and misery of marriage breakdown. We could turn a blind eye to that situation or we could set out to do something about it. The proposal that you will be asked to vote on in this referendum is, we believe, a real response for a real and growing problem. That's why the Labour Party is urging you to vote yes. He then goes on to talk about the right to remarry. Um, there's there's no easy divorce, that it's a pro-family amendment, uh, it's a constitution for all the family, and that there will be new law to strengthen the family. And, and it summarises with, so put compassion in the constitution, help us to create a real response to a real problem, vote yes. Um, it's 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 fairly comprehensive, the, the language in it is, is quite simple, but a little bit text heavy it does require quite a bit of study in terms of a piece of literature to get through it and and again you can imagine people who are struggling with this really struggling with the amount of things they have to think about you know the constitution families the divorces and various different circumstances all of that leads people to kind of feel like i and, and, and it's either voters you got to remember to be a little bit overwhelmed when asked about this, because for a large majority, there are people who have their opinions, strong opinions. I'm for it. I'm against it. But in the middle are people who are going, I, I don't know. And I'm trying to make a decision. And the more we see these complex problems, the more I get scared that I'm not the one who should be making it. Um, and that begins to, to it, it's that more than anything that I think worries people um now in this referendum you would have had a turnout of about 60 percent nearly 61 percent which isn't bad at all um but you do see still this good portion staying away or or unsure about it and people then also when they're in doubt begin to go well, maybe just leave the status quo let's let's vote no and let's see what they come back with or if they change it again not the idea that i want this particular uh change now, if the Labour uh, piece was uh, text-heavy, <clears throat> there is uh, another one I, I've got here, which is the balance of compassion. 
uh, 12 Reasons for Saying No, uh, Vote No to Divorce, uh, Lear Press, 1986. This one is very, very um, text-heavy, going through 12 points uh, to say to you that, you know, this is why you need to, to vote no. Now, again, think about this as a voter. You've just got in, put compassion into the Constitution. Then another leaflet says the balance of compassion, 12 reasons for saying no. Um, and, and, of course, everyone seems in this referendum to be falling over themselves to produce more and more reasons. And if someone can come up with 15 reasons or 20 reasons for doing something, they would. The idea of it being short or snappy uh, is is not there. Give you a, a, a sense of some of the things that maybe they, they're talking about in this. I won't go through the whole document, but uh, read you the introduction and, and say point one here, for instance. When the referendum is over and the votes are counted, we, the Irish people, will have registered our acceptance or rejection of no-fault divorce in Ireland. It has been put to us time and time again that to vote for divorce is the only compassionate response. If we accept divorce, it will be primarily because we regard ourselves as a compassionate people. However, if we were to take a brief glance into the future, we would get a much clearer view of where the balance of compassion really lies. Point one, we are all very aware of young marriages that are presently under stress. Unemployment, taxation, mortgage repayments and other financial and emotional burdens weigh heavy on the shoulders of many people. Introducing divorce has the effect of removing a support, a buttress from the family that makes it more likely that the family will collapse. Could we really, in all com compassion, remove that rock-like support of an indissoluble marriage and so condemn struggling couples who might otherwise have struggled and won? End quote. And I want to stop there on that point, one because it, you know, look, this, I, I said earlier, I talked about this, this attitudes maybe of, of couples um, and, and, you know, people just not stay in the course with their marriage and all that kind of thing. And yeah, it's tough. And, and here you see a version of that because, you know, again, they're talking about, oh, isn't it tough enough out there? We've got unemployment, taxation, the mortgage is going through. Sure, and, and the one thing it's telling you that you can rely on here is, you know, that your marriage is rock solid, you know, um, and that you'll get through this and you'll survive and all will be well. And it's suggesting here you introduce divorce, people aren't going to have that rock solid marriage and they're going to be dealing with these problems. And, you know, maybe one of the partners, it ignores the fact that, you know, I'm not sure I want to be in the marriage with that person supporting me ever. I feel it was a buttress if I felt the only reason they're with me is because the law won't let them out. But, you know, I suppose the idea here is, yeah, well, they might have felt like that for a time. But, you know, over time, you'll fall back in love again when you get over the problems. Uh, yeah. You know, I, 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 you can see where that, that argument comes from. But to a large extent, I think that's what people were struggling with. They were struggling with the fears that society was just not holding the same value on things as they were. Indeed, I'm reminded of, of a Chris Christopherson song uh, called Shipwrecked in the 80s, where, you know, he, he talks about all these changes and things and people began to move away from Bibles and all things that they trusted. And, you know, one of the lines in the song is, you know, you, so you turn to your trusty old partner to share some old feelings and you find to your shock that your faithful companion is gone. Um, you know, that, those kind of things, I think people of a generation were really struggling with. That was kind of like, but we need these supports. We need to be together. Um, 
And, and you know, some of the other things this document goes on to say, it goes on to say, uh, quote, everywhere it has been introduced, divorce has caused working marriages to break down. Reflect on the sadly unpublicised fact that our marriage breakdown in Northern Ireland is four times higher than the South. This discrepancy appears to be solely due to the availability of divorce. A sensible person would not wish to undermine his own marriage. A compassionate person would never want to help undermine the marriage of others. Um. <clears throat> And just to, to, to stop and take that point, you look at it and go, there was this feeling that wherever you have divorce, it becomes easy to get one and it just becomes this open the floodgates argument. And that's there too. Um, also, slightly noticeable in this, just going to say, reading it from a very modern perspective, uh, that it says a sensible person would not wish to undermine his own marriage. And you kind of are you aiming this at the men here? It sounds like guys. If 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 I know if I was reading it, I'd feel like uh, what does it mean? Like guys, you know what? Uh, if you introduce divorce, the women are up and off. Uh, they're gone. Uh, and while you have her, keep her. Um, but if you have divorce and she can get out, she'd leave you in the morning. Um, <laughs> and I'm gonna say that there probably was a certain view. I felt that. I felt I don't want to undermine because you know I'm happy. Uh, I like having you know my marriage here, and maybe maybe I don't trust my partner to stick with me uh, in those circumstances. But anyway, it is just back to that thing in language. I know women were still struggling to get to the fore in these kind of debates. Um, it they, the document that they have here goes on to talk about the dignity of the abandoned wife. Um, the respect. Uh, tains through marriage will be wiped away to be replaced by the stigma of divorce after working at her marriage for so many years is this all we can offer her uh, which is the idea that you know this is the abandoned wife that certain men are going to head off uh, and just leave their wives and god love her she's left with the uh, but you know what what i find gas about that is, is and let me just read that again to you you know because like, what about the dignity of the abandoned wife if we introduce divorce the status and respect attained through marriage will be wiped away to be replaced by the stigma of divorce after working at our marriage for so many years is that all we can offer her um <clears throat> So having given the men a bit of a warning that don't undermine your own marriage because, you know, women could leave you. And then on the next point, let's start, okay, let's give the women something. But what we're actually saying here, it's just the language is, is fascinating for me to look back on now. Um, the status and respect attained through marriage, that, that's how women attained status and respect, that I'm a married woman and I got status and I got respect by marrying my man. Uh, and if my man leaves me, what am I? I'm stuck with the stigma of divorce. There's nothing here that the man will be stuck with the stigma of divorce or that he's a man who abandoned it. It's kind of, he just well, gone off into the sunset. Oh, let's feel sorry for the poor woman that he left um, because she's just lost all her status now um, and she's just a uh, stigma of divorce. Bizarre. Uh, bizarre now, I think, in, in how we look at it, but that is part of the argument. Um uh, it, it does go on through other things to talk about how, um, that you know, we divorce women are free to remarry, but men are more likely to remarry in Northern Ireland than women, uh, that it's led to suffering for children. Uh, it goes on to say if a supposedly prosperous country like the USA, 85% of divorced women end up on social welfare, then what hope is there for Irish divorcees? Can we, in our compa compassion, facilitate this justice? Uh, it, it's that thing of, you know, we're battling here for compassion. 
so if we're going to talk about compassion, we can talk about compassion too on this side. Um, greater hardship from separation, the loss of succession rights, um, uh, a husband deserts his wife and family, the wife struggles to survive and so must file for separation if she is to receive maintenance. From that point on, the deserter is automatically entitled to his divorce, poverty or divorce, that is the wife's first choice, which of course was, was one of the things that became a central part as to was this the right form of, of, of legislation. Um, and of course, they do deal with in this document one of the things that can... Um, come out which is of course women who were being abused in marriage and and you know again a problem people didn't always want to talk about but of course in the balance of compassion document here what did they say about that well it says no one can ignore the sad and condemnable cases of battering husbands but by allowing divorce we permit husbands who have battered their wives to continue this crime into a new and second relationship can this be compassionate I'm going to leave that one just there um, and, and, and let that dwell of, of a view of 1986. I think, first of all, that, you know, I'm glad we're no longer in the point where we even describe these things as battering husbands and husbands who've battered their wives. Uh, I think there's better forms of language, thankfully, we've reached. But it's just the reasoning of it, too, um, that I think sits so odd with us today that by allowing divorce, we permit husbands who have battered their wives to continue this crime into a new second relationship. Can this be compassionate? Um, in other words, if a man is battering his wife, um, at least if we don't have divorce, he's stuck just doing that to that woman. He's not free to go off and find another woman to batter. Um, I just... You know, it's, it's, it's almost saying every responsibility ends up with the victim here. Um... But there you go. Uh, it finally goes off with, think of tomorrow's parents, the children of today. Do you want your child to marry in a climate where people marry for better and run away if for worse is too much for them? Or do you want them to marry in a climate where there is respect for marriage as a lifelong loving contract? Where does the balance of compassion lie with our hearts and our heads and our ballot papers? Let us say no, vote no to divorce. Um... Yep, that was one. I I also got, sent a picture from Alan Kinsler and and um from his literature of of some stickers, which I have to say I'm I'm just kind of they they don't sit they're from the yes side and and something about them just it just simply yellow sticker blue writing and it just says on it say yes to divorce, um. Yeah, I, I'm finding it hard to imagine myself wearing the sticker, you know, um, as someone who's married, you can, I, I, yeah, just something is, <laughs> say yes to divorce, go on. Um, yeah, I, and, and it does show how difficult these things can be to boil them down to a line or a sticker. Um, there's just something quite odd about how they look, it's just people wandering around with say yes to divorce um, uh, on, 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 their, uh, on their lapel uh, as they walk around. There's another great bumper sticker. Uh, which simply says, uh, God says, vote no, no underlined. You know, well, look at it if you're from a certain view and God's telling you, that's, um, where are you going to get that? I, I don't know how they asked him um, and I don't know how he, he, he sent word, but apparently he said it. Anyway, there was also a document from the anti-divorce campaign just said, vote no. Um, divorce costs the family its unity, women and children their financial security, society as a whole its stability, and ultimately the state its basic foundations. Vote no. Divorce is a human tragedy. 
That was from the anti-divorce campaign. Now, that one does touch on this thing, you see, that, that that's at the heart of this. You saw how he mentioned it. You see Gareth Fitzgerald talking about it. And you see this right throughout it. It's about the state and foundations and stability. How do you structure our society? I mean, from, from cave times... And cavemen went round and got into groups and began to protect each other and look after each other. And they organised societies from there. Now, across all kinds of, of, of history, families matter. Families matter as in who's related to who, what they're doing. History was ruled by great families. And society is organised on the basis of families. And that's what people understand. And they're kind of looking at this and saying, look... The basic unit of society is family. Despite all the tragic cases, there is an argument that says the basic unit of society here is a family um, and the family unit. And we have to protect that or put that in some other way because we want people to understand this is how we organise as a society. If we lose that, then we don't know what we're going to be or what replace it. And that fear of that becomes very damning because, you know, you want to say, look, society can adapt to certain rules and changes, but there has to be a way we organise it. And that's at the heart of many of the things in the No Campaign, which does make a reasonable and, and powerful argument in terms of society itself. There was also um, a, a documentary I'm going to read, uh, which was the Association of Lawyers Against the Amendment. You are the legislators. You should know the law. Vote no. One, the amendment would allow one spouse to obtain a divorce against the wishes of the other. Two, the amendment does not require any period of separation. Three, the third or the second or third family of divorce would acquire constitutional rights superior to all positive law. Four, the first family would lose its constitutional status when the marriage of which it was founded is dissolved. Five, the promised legislation cannot change the imbalance of constitutional rights. Six, the amendment does not guarantee that the dependent wife would in fact receive maintenance from her husband. Don't confuse promises about future legislation in which you have no say with the terms of the constitution, which are your responsibility. Vote no. Fairly uh, quick and, and, and simple document there. Uh, that's quite scary. If you're in that situation, you're thinking, what will my rights be and how will I be affected by it? What will what will happen to me, my family, people around us? That's all what's what's scary for. So in the end, the uh, referendum is held. Uh, as we say, the, the turnout is nearly 61 percent. Sixty three percent of people uh, reject the referendum and and it's probably largely because it is you know that that thing of it just not being the right form of divorce if you like really begins to to i think hurt people and 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 hurt the campaign um so in just to give you an insight into some of the the constituencies that you were looking at here in it um some of the big no vote. So, for instance, you get a lot of them in around that that 60, 60 in the high 60s, Carlo Kilkenny. Cavan Monaghan is 72.5%. Um, Cork Northwest, 79% against it. So, you're seeing there the, the Cork Southwest and Donegal Northeast, 73%, over 73% in both of them. Um, you go down to some of the ones where it was um, also looked at you see Galway East 76% Kerry South 76% Leash Offaly 73% Limerick West 75% uh interestingly Kildare 
55%. And you can see that hidden into that, that East Coast uh, area of, of Kildare. Um, but Meath, on the other hand, was 68% uh, rejection of it. 77% uh, in, in Roscommon, 70% Longford West Meath, 72% Tipperary South. You know, big, big votes. Wicklow, Kildare, uh, 53%, 50% no, show a little bit maybe of, of, of where the commuter belt was outside of, because the only real ones then you get into are Dublin, and where Dublin is, and perhaps at the, the, the part of the city, Dublin Central, uh, right in the heart of the city, votes no heavily uh, in 60.9%, nearly 61%, uh, which is, is a quite a heavy vote in Dublin Central. Probably again, though, here you're talking about the influential political figures who are representing it there, being able to get party machines out. Dublin North, on the other hand, endorsed it. Um, they voted by 50.6% in favour of uh, bringing in divorce. Um, so they booked the trend in it. Um, Dublin North East also booked the trend 51% in favour of introducing divorce. Dublin South, 54%. Dublin South East, 53%. Dublin South West, 53%. And Dunleary, the highest endorsement in the country, at 58.8% in favour of the amendment. That has to be balanced, though, that other Dublin constituencies still voted uh, against, Dublin North Central against, Dublin North West against, Dublin South Central against, Dublin West against... Um, and of course, the margins of victory are not big enough in those couple of Dublin constituencies to outweigh what are very heavy results outside of Dublin right across the country. It does begin to show, though, how things are a little bit different in the capital and how, you know, the urban uh, vote is shifting and changing and moving away on things now. Some of those consist consistencies like Dunleary always were considered quite liberal, but it is it is one of those where you're beginning to just see a shift in society led by by what's happening and you're going to see when we look at other divorce referendums exactly what happened um it, how how this began to to develop further right across it and and that was i mean look the type of things that they 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 had you know in this some of the the language that was used in literature i mean and some of the vote no just to, to give you again some some of the things do you want to deprive our young people of the right to a lifelong marriage ireland is independent we rejected military alliances we rejected nuclear power please reject divorce um you know th this is the kind of thing that you're 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 dealing with figures on erosion of marriage um you know how how it it's going up all the time in countries where there's divorce. Of course, it was probably going to go up anyway in terms of uh, that point Gareth Fitzgerald was making, how many people are not getting married at all anymore and, and that that was a, a, an issue. Um, but the language was important. Uh, now Gareth Fitzgerald uh, issued a, 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 a literature and he said, I call on the women of Ireland to vote yes. You are being misled. I can assure you that voting yes will not be against your interests. If it were, I would never have been associated with this proposal. I can assure you that a yes vote will lead to a strengthening of the position of wives and give them property rights that they do not at present have in the family home. I ask you to consider this carefully. I ask you to think of those women and children who are presently trapped in unhappy situations and give them a choice. I believe they deserve this choice. Today I ask you to vote yes, Gareth Fitzgerald. Again, though, you look back and you think 1986, male Taoiseach, 
and he's the one calling on the women of Ireland to vote yes and he's the one reassuring them I'd never have backed this if it was going to go against your interests women of Ireland and you look and go where are the women's voices you know where where are they within that um as another uh, leaflet from the anti-divorce campaign which says uh, protect the family vote no to divorce you can be divorced against your will women and children suffer most in divorce you lose your succession rights in divorce the wife's pension rights are lost in a divorce. You lose your right to the family home in a divorce. Now, there is a short, simple and again, snappy one from the anti-divorce campaign with some fairly big threats in there that I think people would struggle with and um, struggle with trying to find out the answers to those things if they were, were uh, in, in favour of it. They also had an ad, newspaper ad, which says, under the amendment, you could be divorced against your will. Vote no to divorce and make sure it can never happen. Um. Yeah, well, look, none of us want to be divorced against our will, I guess. Um, but there is, it, it, there's almost that sense of fear that divorces are just going to happen. They're just going to be walking around idly along the day and boom, you're divorced and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. But that's a genuine fear. You know, we can't dismiss this either because people felt, you know, could that happen? I, I, I want, you know, don't want to be in this society that becomes willy-nilly about stuff. And they are looking at a society they think, that's changing rapidly and the attitudes of people are changing and we don't want our children to face these things. Um, and, and all of that creates a, a certain pressure for people, um, a pressure where, you know, they want to take the right decision. Uh, they want that decision to be reasonable for them and for their children. But, you know, look, one of the ones that I think is interesting as well is, is Alice Glenn used to produce a, a document called the Alice Glenn Report. Um, and again, she was a, a formidable woman. Um, but just going to read a little bit of what was in her Alice Glenn report in May 1986. Um, because some of this is stuff that I heard, certainly in 86, and, and indeed again in 95, which was the economic argument also of the state of, can we actually afford all this, given our country is doomed and we're jobless and we're hungry and we've got no real good going on in the economy. What the hell are we doing? Wondering about these socialists. Can we just sort out, you know, people being paid and people, people wouldn't be getting divorced if they had a salary coming into the house, that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, she says in the Alice Glenn report, main nine she says, a woman voting for divorce is like a turkey voting for Christmas. The report on the Iraqis Joint Committee on Marriage Breakdown presented to the Dáil in March 1985 obtained the following passage. Large-scale unemployment, poor housing or inadequate financial resources can individually or collectively place a marriage under strain and can exacerbate problems which may exist within the marriage. It is impossible to understand how the government, aimed as it, armed as it was with this knowledge, could proceed to remove in the recent budget all financial support for families of hard-pressed taxpayers. You will recall the effects of this as outlined in my previous issue. Those in the 35% tax band gained 2p per week per child, the 48% lost 23p per child per week and the 58% band lost 42p per child per week. Prior to this, and, and let me just interrupt there and quote and, and interrupt, just note, they are your tax bands. The lowest tax band in Ireland is 35%. The medium tax band, you are being taxed at 48%. And the higher tax band, you are being taxed at 58%. 1986 taxes, just to put that in context where we're at economically. Uh, going back to Alice Glenn report, quote, prior to this, 
Equal pay legislation of 1974 made it a crime for an employer to give a married woman extra pay to enable him to meet the extra costs of supporting a wife and children. When you consider this irresponsible and unconstitutional treatment of the family, you will not be surprised to learn that many marriages are in trouble. The cure for all these ills is suggested by the government is to introduce a divorce culture in our impoverished little nation where the total revenue coming in from the PAYE sector, i.e. 1,900 million plus another 200 million, is to pay the annual interest on the national debt of over 20,000 million. It will be difficult to convince the same long-suffering taxpayers that they must now cough up a further £200 million, which is an approximate figure of the overall cost of supporting divorce culture. The figure is based on the 70,000 persons, 35,000 couples, argued to be in divorce lobbies, and up to 100,000 uh, pensions mentioned by one of the leading pro-divorce uh, dailies, who would immediately avail of legal divorce. The figure is based on a pro-rata basis with the UK and includes the following services. Counselling, health board grants, extra social workers, home advisory personnel, psychiatric and psychological services, medical aid, free legal aid, halfway homes, the new uh, family courts with all the accoutrements, paraphernalia and trappings, ever-increasing social welfare payments to discarded spouses and their children, numerous other factors that are hard to cost, e.g. shattered lives, innocent children who would have no say in the matter, child abuse, including sexual abuse, which are often results from a stranger who replaces the natural father as experienced all too frequently in the UK and elsewhere. Increasing number of children requiring long-stay care in foster homes. End quote there. Look. So I want to read that because Alice Glenn was, was of a particular era and, and, and viewpoint and, and you either liked her or hated her and, and you know, um, being someone in, in Fine Gael, she she was influential on that side of conservative uh, side of things wouldn't have been popular in my house but i do remember that um you know because and not because of her views but our house was a Fianna fall house where i grew up but um you know i do remember that argument about can the country actually afford this because if we have divorce we have to put in all of these services and if we put in those services it's going to be hundreds of millions where are we going to get 200 million back then 200 million was a hell of a lot of money that was being thrown about and they're going to tax us and that was a bigger fear for people i don't want to pay more tax i'm taxed to the hilt you know i know people need divorce but you know ultimately me first and you know i'm not paying for somebody else to you know their decisions tough so a kind of society it's where decisions were made very difficult at, at this point by introducing those kind of arguments and, and they did impact people because people were scared about their money and, and how they were, were paying for things um but interesting i mean there's there's the ones that are just thrown in there mud that long list that i read out is something like um child abuse including sexual abuse which often results from a stranger who replaces the natural father um, as experienced all too frequently in the UK and elsewhere. I find that a tough one um, to, to read in the midst of all these other things. Um, you know, given the experience of so many people that's just thrown in there, there's not really any context. You're very dubious about, you know, what we know of Ireland at this point, what we know of abuse cases and what we know of abuse cases happening within the family. Um, it's a little bit rich to just see it bandied about in there and again shows just what a harsh time this was in debate and um, these things can be just said and just thrown about 
and people weren't aware that, you know, there must have been so much hurt for people and so much hurt to see it debated like this, which is why, as I say, some of the issues are better considered when you look at perhaps uh, a later divorce in, in 1995. But ultimately, um, that was where, where the debate ended up. And uh, that is some just of the, the harsh language that they used in the literature. Divorce, though, is a topic that is known the world over and, and interest people the world over. So I'm going to, to, to talk about the fallout of this. I'm actually going to turn to the New York Times, who uh, on June 28th, 1986, uh, on the front page of the New York Times, right up the top, um, is, is uh, almost a, a, a main headline, the Irish uphold ban on divorce by three to two margin which just shows how important this was in, in world context to, to make that. Um, and just read the piece from the article because it gives a good summary of, of some of the fallout. The Irish have voted overwhelmingly to keep the nation's ban on divorce, delivering a severe setback to the government of Prime Minister Gareth Fitzgerald, according to returns announced today. Mr Fitzgerald personally led the fight to end Ireland, the Irish Republic's standing as the only Western European nation without legal divorce. But the returns from the balloting Thursday showed that voters rebuffed the proposal by a margin wider than three to two. The result could prove threatening to both the four-year-old minority coalition government and the progress of the delicate seven-month-old British-Irish agreement allowing Dublin a consultative role in the affairs of Northern Ireland. 70,000 in legal limbo. Mr Fitzgerald presented the proposed constitutional amendment as an act of compassion towards the 70,000 cases of marital breakdown that critics of the divorce ban say are caught in a legal limbo in the Republic. No less significant, the Prime Minister presented the amendment as a crucial measure of the predominantly Roman Catholic Republic's willingness to tolerate pluralistic secular rights in possible future dealings with Northern Ireland where Protestants are a majority. The voters rejected divorce by a vote of 935,843 to 538,000 279, a margin of 63% to 36%. Opposition politicians immediately questioned the depth of the Prime Minister's support, but he vowed to certainly lead the party in the election next year. We have done our duty and put the matter to the people, but we were unable to allay the fears raised during the campaign, Mr Fitzgerald said. He said the vote could affect long-term relations with Northern Ireland, but did not specify how. The vote was the sharpest popular rejection of an initiative from Mr. from Mr. Fitzgerald in his four years as head of government. Even his supporters conceded he had failed disastrously in gambling on a social issue with deep religious roots in an attempt to bolster his political standing and advance his vision of a progressive Ireland. Politicians said the immediate beneficiaries of the vote were the nation's Catholic bishops, who reminded voters of the church's condemnation of divorce. Another winner, the politician said, was Fianna Fáil, the opposition party, which was technically neutral on the issue. Fianna Fáil members worked to block divorce. Ireland has disgraced itself, said Jean Tanzi, uh, chairman of the Divorce Action Group, uh, the major organisation that fought for the measure as a change desperately needed by abandoned spouses and by children viewed as illegitimate in second illegal unions. Senator Des Hannafin, chairman of the anti-divorce uh, campaign, said today is an historic day. The people have decided they want to keep their constitutional right to lifelong marriage. Mr Fitzgerald's opposition adversary, Charles Hawhey, leader of Fianna Fáil, said the vote showed the government was totally out of touch with the people and had no mandate to govern. 
but Mr Hoy, lacking a parliamentary majority, did not call for the Prime Minister's resignation. The Fine Gael party, Mr Fitzgerald Heads, insisted that normal parliamentary values were not at stake in a direct referendum and the voters' rejection could not be read as a vote of no confidence in the government. Out of the question, said the party's General Secretary, Finbar Fitzpatrick, a general election does not arise. Even if no sudden challenge to Mr Fitzgerald's leadership comes in the remaining week of the Parliament's summer session, his government must face the voters in a general election no later than November 1987. The defeat that emerged in results today, 24 hours after more than 60% of the nation's 2.3 million voters cast their ballots, is certain to figure predominantly in that campaign. The factors in the rejection, as enumerated by political analysts, included the relatively quiet but thorough opposition of Catholic leaders, the failure of weary, weary Fine Gael party workers to mount neighbourhood voting drives, and the opposition's charges that family support, pension rights and other economic underpinnings would be undermined by the change. The main point of emphasis in the post-vote analysis tonight, however, was how badly Mr Fitzgerald had estimated the public's appetite for divorce change. Eight weeks ago, the opposition trailed 20 points in opinion, poll, opinion polling, but it finished 27 points ahead. The referendum posted, proposed amended a section of the 49-year-old constitution that declares no law shall be enacted providing for the grant of a dissolution of marriage. The Government Coalition of Fine Gael and the Labour Party proposed introducing a slow-paced form of divorce requiring proof that a marriage had failed for at least five years and provisions for child and spouse support. Politicians in Northern Ireland who oppose any ties with the Republic were among the first to denounce the vote as a measure of the stranglehold of the Roman Catholic Church and the Irish Republic. A state which is not prepared to respect the rights of its individuals is not to be trusted itself, said Nigel Hamilton, General Secretary of the Democratic Unionist Party in the North. End quote. That was the article carried in the New York Times, which gives you a good summary of the fallout. And let's just touch on, on a couple of things of it. Um, <clears throat> first of all, that political fallout, um, it, it, it's certainly there and it's certainly going to occur. Political fallout, this was government on its last legs and, and Fitzgerald probably had gambled a little bit that the economy hasn't worked out, we've not been getting that, that's proved a tougher nut to crack. Let's get back to a good social issue and do some good positive here. It's where this government might have been considered to be stronger at their best doesn't work Um, gamble goes really badly wrong and suddenly you know they haven't got the right legislation and we've seen you know some of the problems behind that from people like alan shatter and, and, and the thinking behind it but um it, it puts gareth Fitzgerald under serious pressure it does put the government on a countdown to the end uh 1987 is going to be a huge victory for fianna fall um these kind of referendums just gave them a chance to get their organisation sorted out. Even if they were technically neutral, they were testing the waters in, in, in the party. Wasn't something that I think for Fianna Fáil voters was, you know, a make or break issue. You know, they sometimes were being painted at this, uh, the big conservative party. They were pragmatic. They just wanted to bloody the nose of Fine Gael and they got a good excuse when they found out that, you know, uh, it's not the best bill. It doesn't look after everything properly. So, yeah, let's go against us. Give them a, a bloody nose. That's the way politics worked. But it does, it is part of the wind down of Fitzgerald's era um, and, and, and his, his power or his strength or his ability. And, and you know, we see the usual charge there from Charles Hockey of you hear from every opposition leader that the government is always out of touch, probably is getting out of touch now. Um, 
people are worried about more things on the economic front um and that's where the the, the bigger issue lies the other things that are mentioned within it though is <clears throat> first of all what this means for divorce it means that people are unwilling to come back to this issue it puts divorce because they get this one wrong and 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 some of the measures are are, are wrong and the debate never really happens on it it's the danger of having it at that time now alan shatter said it was premature you can't help but feel that it probably was that this seems all like a bit of a rush proposal to get through wasn't ready in time wasn't really being discussed in terms of what needed to happen and, and wasn't as comprehensive a proposal we're not going to return to divorce until 1995. So nearly a decade is going to pass before we can return to the topic again. Because once politicians have done it, there's a view that, look, it's been resoundingly beaten. People don't want divorce. End of. And it ignores the fact, conveniently, for, for some people, that, of course, some people were voting no because they didn't want this kind of divorce. But you don't get nuance like that in a referendum. That's not how it works. You get people just kind of saying, nope, it was over and that's that. It's either with us or against us. It's a narrow frame when it comes to a referendum. It's yes or no. And, and there's no real breakdown as to what people were thinking in various shades of their yes or no. So divorce itself as an issue gets put back on the, the back burner uh, very much so for, for a decade. Um. There's also a couple of interesting things that it mentions there because it talks about that the winners are the, the, the Catholic bishops <clears throat> and the Catholic Church. To a degree, yes. Um, and and we're going to be covering the, the, the other referendums that come up on this and, and where the church still plays a role in and has influence as it goes. For me, though, if this was victory and a positive and a Catholic bishops were a real winner out of it, it's the last one. It's the last one they really can categorically claim victory and claim massive support. And I think for me, they're misreading and, and it does happen. I think it is seen as a victory for the church. And if the church was a little bit more of a political organization, they needed someone to go, guys, this wasn't a real victory for us. We need to reorganize and reshape ourselves. If they were a political party, they'd be spotting the danger in what had happened. They were losing Dublin, uh, losing the urban centers, which is usually the sign that's where the leading edge of where any society goes to look at the big capital cities and, and what their views are. The rest eventually follow. Um, but... They they were missing out on some of those nuanced arguments and assuming that this was all a vote for, yes, we want this, when really the fact that the opinion polls previous to that had shown people were willing to accept it, there was a lessening of the grip and they weren't, they, they believed that this was a ringing endorsement and it wasn't. Uh, and it'll be proven that it wasn't because things are going to change, uh, change dramatically. And of course, various things begin to hit the church after this. So we are looking perhaps at the last time that maybe Catholic bishops would sit back smugly and think they will have some minor victories and other referendums to come. But I think this is the last one they would smugly sit back and think we're a powerful organisation and influential on the Irish people and where we lead the Irish people follow. After this, 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 this is their last moment of that. Um, they're not going to feel as smug about it afterwards. Because they fail to see the dangers, they fail to be political and they assume um, that this happened for completely different reasons than it did. 
uh, and that's that's part and parcel, I suppose, of the fallout of divorce uh, in, in 1986. And so that is it for this referendum, uh, one where another tricky subject was dealt with, not dealt with in a sensitive manner as we've seen, not dealt with in that maybe caring and compile. Everyone battled for the word compassionate. Very few seem to really be showing it uh, from one side and the other. And a referendum where it was definitely one crowd shouting at the other, um, I'm right, you're wrong. And the middle ground never really got a look in. Um, everybody was talking to their direct opponent as opposed to talking to the people who really needed to be ha- have their opinion changed and, and you know ultimately then people plumped for no change and I suppose that's the success for those uh, on the other side that to be said it does lead also in this referendum to others that you're going to see of between uh, abortion and divorce led to these civic groups organising, uh, particularly to oppose governments in this. And they're an increasing problem from here on in in referendums, as we're going to see not so much political opposition, but these civic group oppositions in referendums that begin to rise and begin to be seen uh, against Europe, against abortion, against divorce, uh, all kinds of issues. These groups arise often with the same people behind them uh, and they do become a difficult one and they will also have their day in the courts which we're going to cover as well and some of the changes that happen after this so that's it for uh, 1986 Uh, I do thank you for uh, joining me and listening in and thank you to Alan Kinsella at Election Lit on Twitter for uh, the the literature uh, from the campaign. Thank you also to Car Communications, of course, um, my own employer and the use of the Car Communications Library. And time to research. And uh, all I can say is that I hope you will join me at our next podcast where we will be looking forward into more referendums back perhaps to the topic of Europe, which is going to loom large over referendums uh, in from, from this point on in Irish society. Uh, but thank you for listening. And uh, if you do have any comments, suggestions, do get in touch with me on Twitter at Johnny Fallon. That's at J-O-N-N-Y-F-A. A-L-L-O-N. And uh, I'd love to hear from you and uh, love to have any debate, a discussion about it. Hope you've enjoyed this one. And for now, stay safe.